Hello, friends. Welcome to Your Leo Nation, where we believe in the rule of law, a civil society, and self-responsibility. And we also believe in defending, supporting, and honoring the law enforcement profession and the great men and women who make up that profession. I am so excited today to have truly a special guest really a former colleague of mine in really the law enforcement world and profession, somebody who was part of one of the largest district attorney's office in the United States, a fa fabulous person, a man who knows the law from the bottom to the top, in and out. I know that from firsthand experience. I'd like to, for you to say hello, so to speak, to Joy Esposito. Joey, thank you so much for being a part of our podcast today. Uh, my, my pleasure, Mark. Happy to be here. Happy to share my thoughts with you tonight. Fantastic. So just a little bit for me, because I'm going to let Joey speak for himself about what he has done, been a part of, accomplished, and really managed for, I think, the majority of his adult life, quite frankly. Joey was the chief deputy uh, DA for the Los Angeles DA's office. Los Angeles County DA's office and the time for a lot of that, he worked for Jackie Lacey, some other DAs throughout his career. But uh, during the time that he was the number two in charge of that office is when I met him with uh, Jackie Lacey's tenure. So Joy, with that, I would just like to turn it over to you. You can give a little bio about yourself and let the audience know uh, some of the things that you've done, your history through the DA's office. Sure. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, I started at the DA's office as a summer law clerk while I was in law school, and I was fortunate enough to get to do a misdemeanor jury trial as a second-year law student. And I got the bug, and I decided I wanted to be a DA, and the rest is kind of history. So I've spent my entire adult life up until December 4th of 2020 working at the district attorney's office. And I just rose up through the ranks and I worked in East LA, Central Trials, tried felonies, misdemeanors, and then I went into our hardcore gang division where I spent six years trying gang homicide cases, a little time in our hate crime suppressions unit, and then I was brought into management where I was a special assistant to a bureau director, then I became the assistant head of hardcore, went on to become the head deputy of the major narcotics division, and then a bureau director, the assistant DA of special operations. And then Jackie Lacey appointed me to her chief deputy in 2018, where I stayed until I, I retired. Yeah, that's uh, about the time that, that you and I actually first met in person. And yeah. really, I spent 30 years in law enforcement in Los Angeles County. And meeting you and, and, and uh, meeting with Jackie Lacey uh, was really an eye-opener for me about how things actually ran in the DA's office. And, and speaking about that, I'd like for you to describe uh, a little bit of the size and structure, the different units, maybe volume cases there in, in that office. Sure. And it's a huge office. Mark, if you want to know any specific details as I go through this, just cut me off and, and feel free to ask. But the LADA's office is the largest prosecuting agency in the United States. It's the, the, I should say the largest local prosecutor, right? You can't really include the U.S. Attorney's Office because collectively they're one office and they're massive. But 
we normally run about a thousand attorneys. It's not like that right now. Last I've heard it's under 700, which is extremely low for LADA, but typically we run about a thousand. I think at one point we were up to 1300. There's about seven, 800 support staff members. And then I believe we have the fourth largest police department essentially in the County of LA with our Bureau investigation, which typically has roughly 300 sworn law enforcement officers. So it's a massive office. It's got close to a half a billion dollar budget and it's spread out over this huge, vast County, Los Angeles operating. At, I want to say it's about 32 courthouses. And the office, when I was there, was broken up into three separate sections. There was admin, special ops, and line ops. Most of my involvement, once I was in the office for about four or five years, was in special operations. But everyone starts in line operations. So line operations, just to put into context, they're going to do drug cases. They're going to do gang cases. But they're going to be the smaller end, the drop cases the handful of baggies or balloons of heroin, the possession for sales, where special operations is going to do the multi-kilos, the cartel level cases. Same thing with gangs. Special ops will do the hardcore gang murders, the most serious gang crimes, and line operations is going to do the lower level gang crimes. Special ops is broken up into a series of different divisions. And so you have as I mentioned, hardcore gangs, major narcotics, major crimes against police officers, all the fraud units you can think of, healthcare fraud, white collar crime, real estate fraud, cyber, public integrity division, justice system integrity, which prosecutes police officers when they commit crimes, family violence, sex crimes. It runs the gamut. And really in my career, the LADA's office was I feel, and I'm not saying this to, to sound arrogant, but I think we were national trendsetters in a lot of these areas where other uh, counties in California and around the country uh, looked to us to see how we were approaching particular crime waves, particular issues impacting the justice system. So it's a, it was a massive office. It didn't, it, it didn't pivot very well on a dime, but over the course of my 30 years, I watched it evolve and really change course numerous times on numerous major issues. Well, you bring up well, so many, so many interesting aspects and of the operations of that office. One of the things you touched on is the, really the volume of high profile and high impact cases, of course. The LED's office, amongst other agencies, you work with, I guess, three of the five largest law enforcement agencies in the country, the LA County Sheriff's Department, LAPD, California Highway Patrol, with all the other 100 plus agencies in the county. So I can only imagine there can be quite a, maybe a complex level of operations when you're talking about certain cases, because a lot of cases cross jurisdictions and we're trying to figure out who's going to be the primary investigative agency. So there can be a lot of complexities there, but I think you laid it out very well as far as the, the volume of cases. Speaking of that, 
and again, I don't want to throw anybody in the bus. Look, I'm an old time chippy, 30 years California Highway Patrol. But did you have maybe more effective or efficient relationships with one agency over another? If you're not comfortable, you don't have to throw out a name. But did you work better with certain agencies than others? Um, it's a great question. I feel like on a personal level, um, uh, and, and I think you and I have talked about this before, building relationships is critical in any enterprise. And I felt very good about building, my, building those bridges with CHP, with Sheriff, with LAPD, with Long Beach PD, with Pomona PD, you name the agency. And there's always a chief over that agency. There was someone to talk to. And I like operating from the, the perspective that if you get to know those people, you can have the hard and honest conversations and still maintain professionalism, still get the job done because we all, we don't always agree. But I, I, when I look back on my career, I don't really feel like this agency was better than that agency. I think it, it go, drops down to the individual. There were some great sheriffs, detectives I worked with, great LAPD, great CHP, great Long Beach, great all the other agencies. And then there were some, there were those that had challenges, right? They weren't as into their job, let's say, as the detective I worked with before them. All the agencies, I think, for the most part, are really trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. And I feel like my office made that effort as well. I know your office did that when you and, and, and Jackie were there. I know that for a fact that your objectivity, your professionalism, and your attention to detail, I think, was it was really beyond reproach. And I can only imagine how difficult it is working with numerous agencies who have different protocols, maybe some different political pressures and aspirations and things like this when it comes to solving certain cases and uh, dealing with certain issues that are hot topic buttons for the public. And I know you have to manage those things in a very diplomatic way. And again, I know that from firsthand experience. Speaking of the different agencies, law enforcement agencies, police officers, of course, I know you're in the business for 30 plus years. I was in the business for 30 years. And so we are obviously used to the different types of prosecutorial agencies. So California DA, LADA, the different 58 DAs throughout California, the city attorneys. Can you describe for the audience maybe some of the different responsibilities, authorities, jurisdictions of, of the, of the uh, state attorney general versus the DA versus city attorneys? Sure. Um, and I'll try to keep this as simple as possible. Essentially, city attorneys have, if they want it, misdemeanor jurisdiction within their geographical area. District attorneys have felony jurisdiction within the county in which they operate, which would include any city within it. The attorney general has state authority over the state of California. Now, there's a tremendous amount of overlap, but for the most part, for the most part, the three agencies, in my experience, and there are exceptions to this, work very well together and not try to tread on each other's toes. There's a uh, this informal 
understanding within the different agencies that, for, for example, if a DA reviews what is brought into the DA's office as a felony and the filing DA thinks it's a misdemeanor and kicks it down because we can then refer to a city attorney if there is one. So within the city of Los Angeles, they have a huge city attorney's office, very competent, qualified lawyers that do both civil and criminal, but their criminal is, is misdemeanors. So we'll send something that is borderline felony misdemeanor that we don't think is a true felony down to the city attorney. And invariably they kick it back because they think it's more serious than the, the way we perceived it. But it's all relative and it's what you compare it to, right? They're not comparing their caseload to homicides and serial killers and cartels. They're comparing it to misdemeanor crime. And then you get a lot of overlap with the AG's office, but the AG typically has remained in a much more advisory as well as a appellate role for the average DA case. So if we file a murder case and we're successful in that murder case and the killer is convicted and the defense appeals that conviction, the attorney general is going to step in and represent the people's interest in that appeal. The DA typically doesn't do that. There's a numerous examples I can give you, particularly in the consumer realm or something that is statewide that impacts everyone, whether it's opioids, whether it's the, you know, the racetrack, the horse racetrack, deaths that were occurring, where you get different district attorney's offices from different counties, as well as the state, the AG's office, all working together, including investigators, the prosecutors, to develop an overall strategy. And there's a lot of joint cooperation in that regard. But that is essentially the sort of how things are divided up. LA County, because we're so massive, the LADA's office not only does all the felonies for the county of LA, but we have a, I say we, and I'm not even there anymore, but you get the yeah. idea. Um, <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah. Joey, I do it all the time. I say we, Yeah. Mark, LADA is in my blood. It will, no matter what I do, no matter where I am, I, I'm always going to feel like it's my office, even though right now it is not my office. <laughs> but uh, we have a robust misdemeanor operation as well, because all the unincorporated areas of Los Angeles, the LADA handles those misdemeanors. So it's a very, when I was there, we were reviewing and filing, we were probably reviewing 150 to 200,000 misdemeanors and filing roughly 90,000 to 100,000. And those were on low years when I was there. Sometimes we had misdemeanors at 120,000. And felonies, we were reviewing 175,000 and filing somewhere between 34 to, to 50,000 in some really bad years, even up to 75, 80,000 felonies. So I find interesting now that the current DA's office, the administration, doesn't talk about the cases filed. They talk about the number of people filed on. So it's hard for me to compare and say 
what exact how they compare currently to the way we did it when I was there, because we we talked about the number of cases. There could be 10 defendants, five defendants, three defendants in a single case, but it was one file case. They're now counting at least what it appears to me in their their yearly address by the DA in his report. It looks to be because they say they're counting people that get filed on. So I don't really know how to accurately compare then to now, but yeah, it's a massive operation. Listen, this is very interesting that you, you articulated the difference between filing cases and the, and the individuals, because we're definitely going to get into the current DA yeah. uh, topic. I'm looking forward to that part of it. Save mess in the end, because it's, it's so timely and so impactful obviously to people of Southern California. Speaking of cases, man, you really laid it out well there about the volume. You talked about volume a little earlier, but you actually gave some hard numbers there. And I actually live in an unincorporated area of Los Angeles County. By the way, an area that I used to patrol as an officer. I used to drive through this neighborhood. I go, who lives here? Who lives here? And now I do. But so I, I worked a lot as an officer with the DA with my misdemeanors and of course 10 felonies here in an unincorporated area. But so those cases, and this is something that, quite frankly, as an officer, I would go out and make an arrest, do the paperwork, go ahead and make my recommendations to the city attorney or to the DA's office and sit back and wait to get subpoenaed for a felony prelim or whatever it might be or, or jury trial. Can you explain in some layman's terms that maybe even I can understand, what is the ingestion process and what is the process for the review, the filing, discovery, and then of course, plea or prosecution. How does that look in, in general terms? Obviously, I know it varies from case to case, but is there a general process that can be explained to the audience? Yeah, there, there's essentially, there's two processes. And one is for line operations cases and one is for special operations cases. Typically, line operations cases are reviewed by one, two, five, twenty filing DAs that they're going to receive the the police reports, uh, whatever evidence has been gathered by law enforcement. They're going to review that to determine whether or not a crime has been committed, and if so, if law enforcement has identified the correct suspect. At that stage, there are a number of options. The case can be outright rejected by the filing DA. The case can be sent out for further investigation by the filing DA. I want more. Okay, yeah, you're on to something, detective or officer, but I want a little more. Go do A, B, and C, and then come back to me. Or the case can be filed. Okay, yeah, you got the right person. You got the right bad guy. You got, these are the charges. We've got the proof to sustain it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's really the threshold. Is there proof beyond a reasonable doubt? So we'll file it and move forward. Then the case is going to move through line operations where it's going to go to the preliminary hearing stage and a different DA is going to handle that. It may go to, if the case is held to answer at the preliminary hearing, in other words, there's enough for a judge to say, okay, I'm going to hold this case over to superior court for trial. There's enough there. It may end up going to a different DA then for the trial. In, in special operations, it's more vertical prosecution. Typically, you have 
the uh, police agency bringing the case in to the DA, who's going to deputy DA, who's going to review it, who's going to file it, and who's going to keep it for trial. Now, there are some exceptions to what I just described, but that's typically the way a case flows into the office. The more complex the case, the longer that evidentiary period lasts. If you're going to have a two or three defendant gang murder case where no one, no witness, doesn't matter who they are, no civilian witness, and it doesn't matter what they said on the day of the crime, what they saw, nobody volunteers to come forward. They just don't, right? There's that inherent fear of, yeah, I'm upset now. I just saw something horrible. I knew the person that got killed. I want to tell you what I saw. Those cases don't go to prelim for six months, a year, and they don't go to trial for a year to two years, sometimes even longer. But by that point, people no longer want to come forward and be involved. They want to be forgotten. The evidentiary process, that discovery process, usually in a complex case, lasts much longer than you would in a relatively minor case. It also differs between a police officer only, police officer witness only case versus one involving civilians. So you look back, and I'm sure you dealt with this in your career, the old drop cases, police officers in a, a black and white, they're driving down the street, they look over, suspect looks over at them, and all of a sudden reaches into their pocket, and that dime baggie, they drop on the ground and they walk away. It, that's not going to require a whole lot of additional evidence, additional investigation. The officer that saw it is the one who typically stops the person, uh, obtains the baggie, books it into evidence. It's one-stop shopping. You get one, one police officer to do everything, and you don't really require civilians. So it really depends on the complexity of the case. But I hope I didn't overly complicate this in my description by separating it into line ops and special ops. But And the caveat to a lot of this, Mark, is I haven't been at the DA's office now for, it's been less than two years that I left, but it's a whole new administration and there are lots of changes and the office doesn't look at all like it did when I left. So I'm really talking right now about what it was like when I was there and how things functioned in my career, my 30, almost 31 year career at the DA's office. Listen, no, no, no. You, you didn't overcomplicate things at all. I think, again, that was eye-opening for me to some extent, because, again, when you talk about the enforcement side of the law and doing the paperwork and submitting it, making recommendations, again, it's there are some of, depending on the complexity of the case, where I was involved, where I was called in by a city attorney or by a deputy DA, say, hey, we need some more follow-up on this. I need right. some more detail on this element of the crime. So that did happen. But that's about as far as I think most beat officers go into the process. I think that homicide detectives and things like that probably get deeper into that relationship with the DA. But no, I think it's very eye-opening. I think you're you're definitely concise with it, but but still very clear about the process, and it is fascinating. And again, yeah, I think even for people who are not involved in law enforcement, any end of or either end of the spectrum probably have a good idea that things are different now 
than they were before. Again, we'll yeah. talk about that in a minute. So uh, something else you hit on there about working with detectives and, and officers to uh, maybe enhance an investigation, go ahead and get some more detail. There's a lot of that, of course, that goes on with a, a lot of certainly high-profile incidents involving law enforcement. I'm talking about officer-involved shootings, a.k.a. OISIS, very complex homicides, very that's a deep, complex investigations. But spe specifically, we're talking about when there's a use of force by a law enforcement agency that results in a homicide. Of course, now this I know from experience of being a captain and assistant chief and chief, I was on scene so many times OISs where a DA was eventually on scene as well. Can you tell us about really the role of a deputy DA or the DA's office in officer of all shootings and other similar incidents during the actual investigation process before it even gets submitted to the DA? Yeah. So the way LA DA's office handled officer-involved shootings, I think is one of the most extraordinary efforts that office puts forward on any type of crime by any type of individual. The DA's office years and years ago, Steve Cooley, when he became the DA back in, I want to say it was 2000, I think, or 2001, but I think it was 2000, like December of 2004. We had an old division called SID, and SID's function was somewhat like JSIDs and PIDs, so Public Integrity Division and Justice System Integrity Division, kind of all wrapped up into one. And it had a rollout program for a period of time, but it gone by the way, the dinosaur there at the end of that, that prior, that former administration, when Steve Cooley became the DA, he separated those two. So we then, he then created a separate standalone division called JSID, Justice System Integrity Division, that sole focus was essentially police officers, law, law enforcement officers, and whether or not their actions on duty and off duty rose to the level of committing a crime. And then public integrity, PID, focused on political figures, those outside the justice system who engaged in inappropriate behavior that rose to the level of a crime. He then went and, and it's, kind, it's pretty extraordinary, but he developed a memorandum of, of understanding with every police department in the county of LA to allow the DA's office to roll out one or two of our sworn police officers, as well as one or two of our on-call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, JSID lawyers, deputy DAs. And they're, these are highly trained people. They have an expertise in this. You don't just get hired by the DA's office and wind up in JSID. Most of them go spend many years, are grade threes or fours, have been through other special units, before they go to JSID. And there's robust training. The managers of JSID are very experienced. Typically, they've all worked in JSID for many years and they really know their stuff. What you have in, a, in an officer involved shooting is here in LA County, you have a rollout team, you have a 
a, an additional set of eyes that don't have any bias towards the outcome of that investigation, notified, it goes through the DA's command center. There's always backup teams. So if there happens to be more than one uh, officer involved shooting in a particular evening or day, there's backup teams and there's additional teams on call. So if you have to roll out, let's say it's a multi officer involved shooting crime scene. So there's point A, bad guys are getting in their car and they shoot up, police shoot back and hit someone. And then the driver drives away. There's a high-speed chase for several miles. There's another shooting at that location. You have multiple crime scenes. We'll roll out multiple teams of DAs and DA investigators from JSID to those locations. And they get to sit in on the witness interviews. They get walkthroughs of the locations, of the crime scene, whatever there is. They get to see what they want to see, and they get to hear what they want to hear. It's in a, When you think about it, the fact that law enforcement in this county is agreeable to allow the prosecutor to come and do that, it's extraordinary. I just, I, I could be wrong. I am not aware of any other jurisdiction that, for the length of time we did it, allowed that kind of access to an officer-involved shooting scene. So... In an OIS, you have DA eyes and DA investigator eyes on the scene on the day of the event. And then there's going to be involvement with the whatever you want to call the internal affairs investigative arm of the police department that's going to work with the DA's office, the JSID lawyers. There's a symbiotic relationship on how all that works. And... These, these cases are truly complex, and we could probably spend uh, an hour and a half podcast just talking about what goes into the evaluation of these cases. But suffice it to say, any major use of force or officer-involved shooting, will the management of JSID does not have the authority to make a declination or filing decision. It will go up the chain of command. And in the most serious and the most difficult, those decisions were made by the district attorney, were made by the district attorney along with her executive team. And these were done in full PowerPoint presentations that could last hours. Oftentimes, we would appoint another very experienced JSID prosecutor to play the defense lawyer, the lawyer representing the police officer, if we were to file criminal charges. So everyone that participated in this, including the DA's executive management team, our chief of our Bureau of Investigation, our law enforcement liaison, to get the law enforcement perspective, you're seeing almost a mock mini trial, primarily opening statements and closing arguments, but with all the evidence to evaluate these cases because you want to get them right. And I'm sure there's going to be someone who's watching this that's going to be highly critical of what I'm saying. And they're going to say, why would you spend those kind of efforts when a cop does it, but you don't spend those efforts when a gang member across the street does it? And I understand that on some levels, that to the average person, that's a knee-jerk response. But in reality, the only people, generally speaking, we allow 
as a society to carry firearms. And we say, your job, your job is to use it to protect me, to protect her, to protect him, and to protect yourself and your colleagues. You're allowed to use that weapon. You're trained to use it. And by law, you're allowed to use it. A gang member's not. They're not. So when they shoot their firearm across the street at a rival, it's not hard to see that there's a crime there. Sure, are we going to look at things like self-defense, justifiable homicide? Is it manslaughter? Yes, we're going to look at those things. And we spend a lot of time looking at those things. But when you have a situation where a sworn police officer is on duty and is called out to a scene, and in the course of that call out, fires their weapon, as they're allowed to do, it's a lot more difficult to review it and go, oh, that's a crime versus that's not a crime. So it requires a lot more effort and expertise when you look at someone who is allowed under the law to engage in the activity they just engaged in to say it's now a crime. I hope that makes sense. And like I said, I know I'm going to get criticized for saying it, but it's just the truth. Joey, listen, I love your passion, but your passion is based on fact and procedure. And this is an important point, in my humble opinion, is that this really exemplifies the transparency of the DA's office and all of these agencies in this county that allow this level of interaction. In other words, there is no way that something that should be prosecuted, something that is in the eyes of the DA's office, and maybe, quite frankly, maybe the general public, which obviously that's not a professional eye looking at it, but are not going to be prosecuted. In other words, the claims that there's this insular type of system that protects law enforcement, that attorneys, DAs, prosecutors go out of their way to bend over backwards to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt is a lie in this county. I had, certainly historically in this county, like when you were there and, and Steve Cooley and Jackie Lacey, this is absolutely right what you're saying. And I love the fact that you hammered this home. And so I, when- Mark, can I just ask? Yeah. yeah uh -huh. I don't feel like, as a prosecutor, we ever bent over backwards to give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt. I don't think right. that, yeah, I, I think that we looked at it with a critical eye and said, if we're going to file criminal charges, we have to be right. Every case the DA's office files, every case from the, from the lowest misdemeanor to the most serious felony. Our job is to get it right. Our job's not to win. Our, our job's not to succeed. Our job is to make the right decision for the right reasons. If it's there, that's the right decision. If it's not there, then it's not. I feel like every parent who has a child that gets arrested, if you just think about what you'd want the prosecutor to do before they file charges, you wouldn't want them to listen to the loudest voices out there calling for a filing. You wouldn't want the prosecutor to be swayed by the news media, the print media. You wouldn't want the prosecutor to be swayed by 
an election that they may be facing, what might help win that election. You wouldn't want the prosecutor to do that. You'd want the prosecutor to push all that aside and look at the facts and the law and make a determination. I, I get it. Anyone who loses someone, right? And I deal with it now in my current job, right? I'm not a prosecutor anymore. I work in a law firm. Everyone that loses someone to what they believe to be at the hands of somebody else feels in their heart that somebody else committed a crime. I get it. I get that. But the prosecutor's job isn't to go, I feel sympathy for what you're going through, so I'll make you feel better by filing a crime against someone. That's not how it works. Civil law exists, so there is an avenue to pursue outside of criminal law to try to redress what is perceived to be a wrong. But filing criminal charges on someone the prosecutor wields a tremendous amount of power. When you think about what our society would become if prosecutors flexed their muscles just because they could and because it was polit politically expedient to do so, the whole system would fail. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that both, I, I worked for four DAs, but I really worked at a executive level under two, Steve Cooley and Jackie Lacey. And I will say during the, that 20 year period, because Steve was the DA for 12 years and Jackie eight years, that 20 year period, I really never once felt that my boss directed me or anyone else to file a case because it was politically helpful to them. OISs weren't as emphasized in the media and in society as they are today. So I don't think Steve Cooley necessarily had to deal with the level of attention on those cases like Jackie did. But I'll tell you something. Jackie Lacey was one of the most courageous people I've ever met because she could, in the political fight of her life, filed on cops. And there would have been a huge segment of this county that would have applauded her for doing that. But she didn't because it wasn't the right thing to do. And she took a massive political hit for doing the right thing for the right reasons. Quite frankly, we should applaud that kind of, that, that, that level of honesty and integrity in our head prosecutor. We should applaud that. Every, like I said, I get it. You lose someone at the hands of another, and most people want blood, right? You want someone to pay for it. But OISs are just a different animal. They're just, they fall into a different category, and it's, they're very difficult to evaluate. They're not easy. And sometimes there's such a fine line between is, it, is there or isn't there a crime there? And look, in a criminal case, the jury has to be unanimous, right? If 11 out of the 12 people say guilty and one says not guilty, that case is hung. That is not a conviction. That's either a redo, a settlement, or something else. So now you've got an executive team that's evaluating an officer-involved shooting, 
And even if on occasion you have one, one or two people that say, God, that's so borderline. I think we should file it. When you have eight or 10 other people that go, I don't think you should. If we can't agree as prosecutors, how's a jury going to agree? And I really get offended when I hear the media say things like, well, just throw it up there and see what the jury does. Would you really want me to do that if it were your child? Would you really want the prosecutor to throw it up there just to see what a jury would do if you don't believe that the evidence supports the filing? So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on OISs. That's my view of it. Again, Joy, I, I couldn't agree more. I think you're dead on. I think you're dead on correct. And that's why I said earlier on, on the show about your objectivity, Jackie's objectivity. And like you said, that's your job. You have to weigh out the facts against what the law says, period, end of story, without favor. And unfortunately, I think not only locally in the county here, and I think nationally in a lot of ways, we're seeing that commitment to that principle waning, dying. We're starting to see more and more political decisions interjected into the prosecution process. And I'm disgusted by it. I know the kind of people that you and Jackie are. And so what you're saying, I want everybody to know, I believe me, I know in a very intimate way, very intimate ways, how fair, how detailed, how objective that joy is. And uh, again, I'm glad for your passion. I think you nailed it. So we have been alluding in a lot of different segments here about, about what we're dealing with now in the form of this current DA. And again, I was there that whole transition when Gascon was elected. We all knew what was coming. I don't think any of us thought it'd be as bad as it is, but we knew to some extent what was coming. Can you tell us on a, a personal level, obviously professional as well, but what that transition was like? Obviously, everyone knew, obviously, Jackie Lacey was leaving because we had a new elected official. But I don't think everybody understood the impact that it might have on her staff, starting with and including you. So if you want to just maybe give us a little insight about what that was like. Yeah, it, it was a strange time because... Like I said earlier, my, my whole adult, adult life was spent there, right? When I have these conversations with some of my former colleagues who are still there, and I only know this because I'm no longer there, and I can see that there's life outside of the DA's office. But when you're there, it is so important to you. And truly, I could not conceive of me doing anything else the rest of my life until I was ready to fully retire from the DA's office, that I'd be doing anything other than being a DA, right? That's it's becomes in your blood, right? And I love that job. If I, knowing now, or knowing then what I know now, how I would have ended up retiring somewhat prematurely in my career, right? I was only 56 years old when I left. I planned on staying till I was 64, 65, 66. So a little bit before I was actually ready to go. But even knowing how it, it's going to end up, I do it all over again. I would start from square one and do it all over. That's how much I love that job. 
to families. You, when you are, go to law school, maybe not everyone thinks this. I did. I thought, you know what? I can change the world. I can impact the world by going down this path. And you learn very quickly that you can't impact the world, but you can impact individual people's lives. Um, if it's okay, I'm going to give a shout out to someone who, LaBertha Pickett Allen. I met LaBertha, God, probably in 1996. Her son, Ernest Pickett Jr., he was gunned down outside of Dorsey High School in 1984 when I was an undergrad. I wasn't even in law school yet. And he was an honor student at Dorsey High, a baseball player. He was just going home and a, a gang shootout took place and a stray bullet hit him and he died. I, got, I was the prosecutor assigned to that case. I got to know LaBertha and her daughter, Veronica, in 1996. And I've stayed friends with him ever since. And being able to, she calls me. If she were on this, she'd say, she, this is what she'd call me. She'd say, he's my G.I. Joe. That's what she calls me. And I love it, right? LaBertha could call me anything, quite frankly. I, she's such an amazing person. But I was able to impact her life for the better. Um, people don't understand that. And what goes on at the DA's office now is unvictim focused, unvictim centric, and it's far more defendant centric. That I think people forget what what the system is designed to do statutorily, right? It's adversarial. There's those on this side and those on that side, not everybody on one side. I, when it was time for me to leave, it was really bittersweet. And I went through a lot of discussions with my family, with my wife, trying to figure out, do I stay or do I go? I have tremendous respect for Steve Cooley. I still talk to him regularly. He's a great man, a wonderful man, a visionary. And he tried to convince me I should stay, that I needed to stay in the DA's office. I just felt like at a certain point, nobody from the new administration called me to say, hey, we'd like you to stay. Hey, can you stick around at least six months before you decide or three months help us transition? I, didn't, I never really got anything like that. so. I finally, I thought, you know what? Um, Jackie Lacey was my DA. Jackie Lacey made me an assistant DA, made me her chief deputy. She's leaving December 4th. I'm leaving December 4th with her. I'm not working one minute for this new administration, knowing that, and I don't begrudge them for this, but they're not going to keep me as a chief deputy, right? Steve Cooley put in his people. Jackie put in her people. Gascon is going to put in his people. I get that, but I wasn't going to stick around to get bloodied up and demoted several rungs and have to answer to some, some young kid who I think he was a grade two or I don't, I don't even know if he had ever tried any felonies or if he did, it was just a couple who essentially took my office and my job. It's like, okay, Gascon, you have a right to do that. I don't respect that. I don't think that was a good thing for the DA's office. I don't think the troops respected that. And uh, and when I and here's the irony. No, when I left on December fourth, no one ever called me, not once. Not hey, we know you were the chair of the special service committee. Why did you decide this? Where is this in the process? 
we're talking the largest DA's office in the country. And the chief deputy was essentially, Jackie always said I was the CEO and she was the chairman of the board. But I think really in reality, I was the COO and I ran operations. So there's a lot of moving parts, whether it's budget, whether it's uh, the, the major cases, a lot went through the chief deputy's office. Nobody called me once to say it's their prerogative. And if they don't feel like that there was a need to do it, they didn't. But I did, I find it fascinating that here I am. I had left my, all my contact information with, while we were still there and Jackie was still the DA, we did have a zoom call with Gascon and his new administration, or at least a small portion of it. And Jackie asked me to provide my contact info to his point of contact, which I did. And she and I did communicate over email while I was still the chief deputy. So she asked for some documents and statistics and those things, general stuff, which we provided to her. But once I left and they actually took over the operation, I never heard from anyone again, which I don't know. I, again, I just find fascinating, but they're prerogative. Well, I, I agree with you. I think it's less than a mystery and more revealing about what type of regime is, is there now. In other words, you're cutting off your nose to spite your face if you're actually in the business of, of prosecuting crimes and do not rely on three decades of institutional knowledge, operational, <clears throat> operational knowledge, relationships with law enforcement agencies. When you throw those things away, you're not serious about doing the job you're sworn to do, in my opinion. <clears throat> Getting deeper into not just Gascon, but of course Gascon, Gascon specifically because he's the DA here in Los Angeles County, but this whole trend, this movement that uh, we just saw recently, Bodine was voted out of, out of office in San Francisco County in, in a very blue county, about 90%, I think registered Democrats voted him out. Of course, just recently, Gascon was under the, under the threat of a, a recall, which didn't come to fruition for whatever reason. Right. Mismanaged signatures. <clears throat> it's a whole different story. But what do you think, Joey, are the motives of people like Gascon? Is there some type of a payback, payback mentality? Is there really just a disregard for the things I talked about opening <clears throat> this podcast with a civil society, the rule of law, self responsibility? Because in my eyes, these 59 year old eyes, I see a complete disregard for those basic principles that most Americans used to hold dear. He has flushed those down the toilet. We've seen it over and over. So I just want to get your opinion about what you think is going on. Is this a loose conspiracy or are these happen to be individuals that have the same philosophy about reimagining law enforcement, reimagining being prosecution? What is going on in your mind? There's an awful lot to unpack there, Mark. There it is. It no, is. And, and again, this this alone could be a an hour and a half podcast conversation. I Joy, I let me cut you off. Let me cut you off right there. We're interrupting because we're gonna have you back. Okay. I, you're absolutely right. There's so much. We're gonna have you back and we're gonna dive deep in some of these specific topics, but do the best you can with a, sure. a little bit of uh, explanation. Yeah, you know, I, I think 
I had an open door policy as the assistant DA and as the chief deputy. I had meetings with defense lawyers whenever they wanted to meet. If the ACLU wanted to come in and talk, we talked. If justice advocates like Scott Budnick and others wanted to talk to me, I always made myself available to hear their positions on the justice system. And there, let me start with this premise. There is absolutely nothing wrong, nothing wrong with people looking at our justice system and saying, is it really the best it can be? Are there inherent flaws in the way we've been doing business over the course of the last century or two? And we don't see it anymore because that's what, that's all we know, right? We're not looking outside that box with a critical eye. We get immersed in that day-to-day widget making of our, of this massive institution with all this crime that comes in it and all these prosecutors and trying to get to an ethical and fair outcome in each case. Are you no longer looking at how to make the process better? That's a totally fair question. Then you take the concept of rehabilitation. I don't think I know anyone, no matter how conservative they are, that would say, I don't support the idea of rehabilitating people that want to and can be rehabilitated to let them out early and live productive lives. That's what, that's what we'd like. That is what we'd like. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work. And I don't think there's some wholesale answer to incarceration that is a cure-all that says, you don't have to incarcerate people. If you do this, they'll be rehabilitated. I don't think that makes sense. I, I think if you have an idea on if you believe people are incarcerated too long and that lengthy incarceration doesn't help with rehabilitation, okay, there's probably some truth to that. But what do you do to ensure rehabilitation if you're going to let them out early? What infrastructure exists? What programs, what process is there as the alternative to incarceration. If there isn't one, then don't go change the rules to impact one or two individuals that you can hold up as the poster example of a failed justice system and say, now we're going to let everyone out because we want to help these two or three or five. You have to, you, when it comes to life and death decisions, and, and I think the justice system very much involves life and death. It, you need a tone in the water. You need to do a pilot program. You need to figure out if it's going to work first. You need to evaluate it. You need to get funding behind it, not just a bunch of celebrities with a lot of money that live in these houses that are nowhere near crime-infested areas. Uh, it just it's, it shocks me when you hear that they have private security and they have elaborate alarm systems and they have full-time patrol. Yeah, sure. It's easy to say, let them all out. Cause the people that get out aren't going back to your neighborhood. They're going back to the neighborhood they came from. Historically, the statistics support that. You then take the racial equality issue. And if you look at just numbers, it's not hard to arrive at There are more black and brown people in custody than any other segment of society. 
But is the answer, let's solve that by just changing the rules so they don't have to be in custody? Or does it make more sense to look at what got them into custody in the first place? And could we address that issue? Don't we want them not to end up in custody in the first place versus do something to get them into custody and then say, it's not fair that you're in custody, so we're just going to let you out? How does that, what message do we send to the LaBertha Pickett Allens of the world whose son was an absolute innocent, good kid, had a future, and his life was cut short at 18, and he didn't do anything wrong? What he what should someone like me or like you in, in, in our prior jobs say to someone like her? He doesn't count. He doesn't count. He was brown, too. He doesn't count. That's it's that's so insulting to me that we're, we're only focused on. The. Who ends up in custody, not on why they end up in custody. I don't know what the answers are, Mark. Uh, I absolutely do not have the answers, but I do think that before you make wholesale changes, you don't just hire people that tell you what you want to hear, that give you the data that you want to read. I don't care what anyone says. You can monkey up the data however you want it to make it look like how, however you want it. Just like the earlier example of cases filed versus people filed on, right? You can make those numbers look the same, even though when you dig deep down, they're really not, right? And if people don't ask the right questions, if they see what they want to see, they're satisfied, and that's the end of it. I, I think that this concept of that some of these progressive DAs have, that they want to change the system, I don't think that is necessarily bad, but it's the manner in which they're going about it. It looks like it's political expediency for these individuals to get into office, to get the attaboys, to go to the next job, right? It didn't work for Chesa Bodine. That guy was not a prosecutor. That guy never spent uh, a lifetime dealing with the moms, the dads, the spouses, the siblings of those that were raped, murdered, tortured. They, he never had that. He doesn't have that connection right? He's never probably, maybe he has. And uh, if he has, hey, sorry, but it doesn't appear that you have. But going on a rollout, right? Going with your law, enfor for law enforcement partners at night at two in the morning into a highly crime riddled area is eye-opening for people. I'd encourage everyone, go on one of those ride-alongs, see what it's really like. See when what it looks like, because I've seen, I've gotten to watch the, the videos, the footage, the body worn, the aerial, the dash cam, the surveillance, whatever it is. I've gotten to see the video of what it looks like it, at night when a police officer says, put your hands up and the person reaches in their back pocket. It, it, it's. What, what do we tell those guys and, and, and women wait to see if they shoot you first? It, it's. So I'm a toe-in-the-water kind of guy. You, t you take the concept of no bail. Is bail inherently unfair? Sure. <clears throat> There's a very good argument to make that people that are more affluent can make bail. People that own property have a better chance of making bail than those that rent and aren't affluent. Absolutely. So is there an unfairness 
to an individual who makes hundreds of thousands of year, uh, thousands of dollars a year, and they have to post 10% of a, of a $50,000 bail versus someone who doesn't have that job. Sure. Is the answer the no bail for anyone? Let's level that no bail for anyone. <clears throat> I don't believe in that concept, but what I loved is, and this started before I left the DA's office, and the public defender brought it to me. It's called the Bail Project. And the Bail Project, and I don't know if it still exists, but if it does, it's a great program. And it's a nonprofit. And it raised money. And it basically said, <coughs> excuse me, all this talk and my throat's getting dry. Um, the Bail Project basically said, for certain levels of crime and below, we'll put up the money for you. And we're now on the hook to make sure you show up and don't do anything wrong, right? That's the point of bail. We're going to text you. We're going to come to your apartment. We're going to give you a ride if you need it, but we're going to make sure you come to court. And they've been a highly successful program. So instead of saying nobody gets bailed, there's no ramifications, there's no responsibility when you commit a crime to be released. The bail project says, no, there needs to be responsibility. We're going to assume that and we're going to get in your shorts to make sure you show up to court and you don't do anything you're not supposed to when you're out. I can live with that. Uh, I, that is at least a more of a toe in the water, not a wholesale, let's line out bail. Um, but that's just one example. But I'm not a believer in throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There, I promise you, um, there is a poster example for Every crime that's ever existed, where when you look at it, you will see it and go, that was unjust. That wasn't right. This person didn't deserve that. You're always going to find that. But there's the other 99.999% that don't fall into that category. So why do they get to bet? Why, in order to solve that, the problem for that one individual, do we have to wipe the slate clean for everyone and then not have a real solution for it? there's a punishment aspect to committing a crime. Just as a parent, I don't know how many parents there are out there, but just as a parent, if you say to your kid, if you do this, these are the consequences, and then they do it, and you, you don't impose the consequences, they're going to do it again. There's no incentive not to do it. So there, to some extent, yes, is incarceration harsh? It is. But taking LaBertha Pickett's only son's life at 18 years old is also extremely harsh. And he didn't do anything wrong. We have a penal code. We, we have sentencing guidelines. We have judges. We, we have this process for a reason. I, I, I think when, when a DA or a mayor or a city attorney or a governor decides to impose their personal view on the law. I cannot support that. I can't get behind it. We put jurors in the jury box and we ask them things like, what are your views? This is before most drugs became legal or became infractions or misdemeanors, but it was, how do you feel about the legalization of marijuana? And even if they said, I support the legalization of marijuana, you'd still ask them, 
but can you be fair? That may be your view, but the law says it's illegal. Can you be fair? And if they say, no, I can't be fair, they're excused. They don't get to stay. They're gone for cause. You don't even have to ask them to leave. The judge says, you're not allowed to sit here. You're not entitled to evaluate this. But why is it okay for a governor to say, I don't support the death penalty, so I'm going to dismantle the death chamber? Yeah, whether you get someone there or not, there's no place to do it. Now, there are plenty of arguments for saying we, we shouldn't have the death penalty. That's not what I'm talking about, is, is an argument about whether we should or shouldn't. But if we want to change the law, there's a mechanism to change the law. It's by initiative, right? It, then do that. Or governor, commute the sentences, right? Put it on you. And likewise, the same with the district attorney. If, if you don't like what the rules are, you, you swore to take an oath to uphold the Constitution and the laws of this state. If you don't like them, then do what you need to do through the initiative process to change them. But don't impose your will and say, I don't believe in the gun enhancement. If you commit a crime with a gun or without a gun, the punishment's the same. Are you kidding me? The reason the punishment is higher for a gun is it's inherently that much more dangerous than a crime without a gun. It just is. We punish people that commit a crime with a knife far less than we punish people that you're eligible to be punished when, with a gun because knives don't inadvertently hit an honors baseball player who's going home from school, right? They don't. Um, knives don't allow you to attack your prey, your victim, from across the street. You got to go up and confront them. But I remember I had a friend growing up who was so anti-hunting, thought it was appalling to go with guns and hunt animals and kill animals for sport. And I remember he used to say, look, if anybody wants to kill a bear, put a knife in your hand, go face the bear. And if you win, the bear is yours. But if you're going to sit from a helicopter or from a mile away with a high-powered weapon and you're going to kill that bear, that's just not right. But that's how dangerous guns are. That's the difference between a gun and a knife. All right. I get on my soapbox on these things. and I know I get carried away. So you cut me off whenever you want. But um, no, I am getting educated as I know our listeners and our viewers are. This has actually been... Uh, I'm not surprised, but I'm just so pleased about how brilliant this has been, Joey. And I just, I was just listening carefully because as I said earlier, you're objective and you are a clear thinker. And I, I think your objectivity and fairness has shown brightly and clearly. Listen, I'm the one who is accused of getting out of soapbox and, and owning the room with my passions and my positions, but I think that certainly in your case, what has made you such a great leader, and I hope that I was a good leader in, in my role, but having core beliefs like you do and having the ability to evaluate information and, and facts, outcomes, consequences without favoritism is essential in doing the types of jobs that you and I did respectively. No, I didn't want to cut you off. I wanted to keep listening. but. What I do want to do 
is make sure our listeners, our viewers know that we're going to have you back because like I said earlier, there are so many areas that we can dive deeply into and really dig down deep on some of these great issues. And, and that includes Gascon and other prosecutors across the country that are engaging in what I think is really just an abuse of their discretion as far as prosecutions. I really do. I think it's a pure abuse and you made that clear as well, but I want to thank you for being here, for sharing the information you did, for sharing your passion and being an example of someone who for three decades did uphold the rule of law, did honor it, just like our great partners in law enforcement do every single day, no matter what the uh, media says about the institutions being racist and unfair and biased and thin blue line and all that crap. We know as an institution that law enforcement does a very good job every single day under challenging circumstances. They are no more perfect institutions than we are as individuals, but they do the right thing by and large every single day. So I want to thank you again, and I want to have you back. I want everybody to remember to support our nonprofit partner, your Leo project. You can go to the button at your Leo nation, our website, find the donate button. That's going to go to a tax deductible donation for ourselves, the families of fallen law enforcement officers. Please go there. I am the chief, your host, Mark Garrett, your Leo nation. God bless all of you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of your families and show some uh, bravery out there. Some courage, do the right thing. Love you. See you next time. Joy. Thank you. Thanks chief. Appreciate it.